If you have your Bible with you, please open it to the book of Deuteronomy. We'll be in chapter 31 today. Uh, We are going to cover the rest of Deuteronomy and thus bring to a close our working through that book. Although we will be talking about chapters 31 through 34, our main focus will be in 31. As Deuteronomy is coming to a close and as we've looked at the past couple of chapters of, of Deuteronomy, we've noticed that there is a severe pessimism in Moses. Moses has provided the law, he has provided the instructions of the law to the people, and he has told them you are to keep it. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You are to do everything you can to fulfill the law, and if you do not... If you begin to slip in the law, if the law begins to move away from you and you from the law, if you do not keep it with all your heart, if you transgress God, if you go after other gods, then curses will come upon you. These curses were inherently horrific. As we've seen, and we will see again today, Moses and the Lord are not terribly keen on the idea that the people will actually keep the commandments. Not only Moses explicitly saying, you have not been given a heart for this back in chapter 29, but simply the length and breadth of the curses that Moses goes after, that he explains in Deuteronomy 28, implies that he is not terribly optimistic about the opportunity that the Israelites will have in keeping the law. He just doesn't think they're going to do it. However, it's easy for us to read that and to determine I think erroneously, that pessimism equals an excitement or a desire for them not to keep it. And certainly this is true. There's plenty of times when I've been pessimistic about something and I've been happy when I've been proven right. We oftentimes think this. So we can, we can listen to people who are pessimistic about something and then think that they don't want that thing to happen. So it's easy to read Moses here and, and to say that he's, he's very pessimistic. He doesn't regard their chances of very good at actually fulfilling the law and to think that he actually wants them to fail. But as we go through these last chapters, we realize very quickly, especially under chapter 33, that that isn't the case. That simply because Moses doesn't want or simply because Moses doesn't think they will fulfill the law doesn't mean that he doesn't want good things to come on the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, the last words that Moses speaks to Israel are not the words of the cursing. They're not words of warning, but they are words of praise coming in chapter 33, the final blessings that he pours out on Israel, not only telling them who their God is, but saying things like, Judah will have his hands contend that God will work for Judah. Levi will be blessed. Benjamin will be the beloved of the Lord. Joseph will be blessed by the Lord. Zebulun and Issachar are the hidden treasures of the sand. We'll find the hidden treasures of the sand. Gad will be blessed. Dan is a lion's cub. Naphtali will be sated with favor, which is a wonderful expression in verse 23. Asher will be the most blessed. All through this, Moses is very clear that he doesn't wish for the curses to come on Israel, even though he thinks that they will. He finishes his blessing over Israel in verse 29 of chapter 33 by saying, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, a shield, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs." He pronounces this blessing over Israel to show that he isn't actually against Israel. Even though he doesn't think that they will keep the law, he thinks that the cursing of God will come upon them. He nevertheless wants them to do well. He wants them to be blessed. We know 
that God wants the same. And we, we need to take this and make sure that we are being perfectly clear with our pessimism and our stated beliefs and not implying that we are happy about the results. So I, we know, we know that salvation doesn't come to people always and evermore, that there are people who reject the salvation that has come in Jesus Christ. There are people who reject the gospel. There are people who do not want that salvation. We will tell them of the judgment of God that is coming. We will tell them of the coming hell that awaits them if they do not repent. But at the same time, we should never, ever imply that because we are pessimistic about people's ability to do it on their own, because we warn them about hell, that we are glad for hell that we are happy that it exists. Moses is looking at them and he is warning them and they have been a thorn in his side for years. But nevertheless, he wants only what is best for them. What is best for them is then to keep the law. But how are they to keep the law? How are they to keep the law if they don't know what it is? They don't just need to keep the law, but they've got to know it. They've got to remember it. It is supposed to be in front of them. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 talks like this. This is the central portion of the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You are, in other words, to always have them before you so that you will not forget them. It's not just a matter of you not doing them, but you can't forget them either. And so as the final words of Moses before he goes the way of the world, he looks at Israel and he gives them, by the provision of the Lord, four ways that they can remember what God has done so that they can keep God's law. We will read through Deuteronomy 31 to see these four ways. The first is that God provides leadership. God provides leadership. We read through the first eight verses of chapter 31. Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. A large portion of remembering God's law is centered on knowing who God is. 
After all, as we just read in Deuteronomy 6, the major commandment of the law, in, in either the beginning or the end of the law, the law is summed up, as Jesus has said in this, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You can only do that when you know who the Lord is. It is the instruction of God's law. A large portion of it is simply remembering who God is and what he has done. You can see this when you go to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is God's will to be good for us because he has been good. How do we know that God will be kind to us in rough times? How do we know that we don't need to give up, that God has not forsaken us or left us, as Moses says to Joshua here? How can we know in times of trouble and in rocky times that God will be with us? The book of Psalms continually does this. It looks backward. It looks back on the things that God has done and says, because God has acted this way, we will see him act that way again. Because he has been kind to us in the past, he will be kind to us in the future. Because he has acted this way, he will act that way again. It is on knowing him and knowing his good work, even at the end of this passage in Deuteronomy. We get Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses laid his hands on him. So the people obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in all the sight of Israel. Moses was known as the man who worked for God. He did the miracles of God. God told him to do these miracles. This was a signpost of God's favor upon them. And now Moses has passed that baton on to another leader. He is commissioning Joshua to do exactly what he did. And as we will in the days ahead, go to the book of Joshua and start reading through and studying through that work, you will find that the book of Joshua presents Joshua as Moses in miniature. He does exactly what Moses does. He not only, again, revives them and puts the covenant before them, but he leads them into the promised land through a river by stopping up the river on its north-flowing side so that they can pass over into the promised land. He does exactly what Moses does. And it is by doing that that it is able to keep a memory for the people of God. God will be faithful to them, not just in word, but also in living examples. You see, Joshua is a very important person, not just because he is the one going over, but because he is one of the few left that can say, I was there. I saw the miracles of Egypt. I saw the plagues coming down. I saw God send flies and boils upon the Egyptians and spare us. I heard the voice of the destroyer going past our houses as he passed over as a young man. I walked on the dry ground of the Red Sea and I watched as the Egyptians were swallowed up. I walked along the path of the wilderness after the spies were unwilling to give a good report back to the people of God. Joshua has been there before. And he can stand before the people and look at them and say, God has been faithful. This isn't something that I'm just a tradition that's being passed down. He can say, I was there. I saw it. This is part of what it means for people to remember. For people to remember faithfulness is to have people amongst that community that have actually experienced God's faithfulness over a long period of time. 
This is why we cherish and we ought to cherish elders, not elders like Richard and I alone are elders here or Doug is an elder here, but elders in terms of age. We want those types of people in our congregation because we need to know God is faithful. God is faithful. I know that God is faithful because I've been through it. You're going through a rocky time in your marriage. I've been there. I've been through it. God is faithful. Are you diagnosed with cancer? I know I've been there. God is faithful. All of these things that we face trials and troubles with as younger people, there are older people who have done and gone through exactly the same stuff, and God has been faithful. Paul says this in writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is struggling, struggling mightily. Timothy is is worrying about all of the problems that he has around him. And Paul is in prison as he writes. Paul knows that he is facing probably his last days as he writes this. And he is writing to Timothy and he's saying, listen, Timothy, you need to know it's going to be okay. God is faithful. He will always lead you through. And Paul is writing this from prison, saying God is good to you. He will be good. Do what he requires of you. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul isn't saying this as simply theological knowledge. He's saying this because he has lived it out. We remember, oftentimes, we remember God's faithfulness through others, through elders, through people who have been there before. And Joshua will be a reminder to the people that God will keep his promises because Joshua has been there before and he will do for them what Moses did for him. They will remember Secondly, God provides repetition. God provides repetition. Verses 9 through 13. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the son of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the time set in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moses tells the people, you're going to hear the law, and every seven years it's going to be read to you all over again. There is a repetition there, so that even the little ones in the land who haven't heard the law spoken by Moses will hear it again. Those who have never heard it will hear it. Again, most of these people can't write. Remembering is is such a difficult thing for us, because we don't need to. We can write down everything and save it in a computer file, which we can, even in updates windows, we can just move those files along. We can take pictures of things and keep them forever. We have ways of retrieving information from the internet. You are never, unless your phone dies, without scripture. It's always available for you. 
There's so little need to put it to memory, but for these people, there is a need to put it to memory. They can't read, the vast majority of them. So they can't just keep a scroll of the law in their house and expect to go and see it. They need it repeated to them. And Moses is recording that they will have the whole thing read to them every seven years. Repetition is often something that people really, really dislike. They feel like it's monotony and it's boring, and, and especially in our day and age where you need to have something new all the time. We are an entertainment-driven culture. We don't like repeats, right? We just don't like them. We don't like watching the same thing over again or experiencing the same thing over again because we find it boring and we think that it doesn't serve a purpose. So we want new things. We want new experiences. This is an argument that people have against sort of ritualized worship. We talk about it in terms of ritual. And ritual, by the way, always has a bad connotation. Always has a bad connotation. I'm going to tell you it shouldn't. Ritual can be good for you. It can be edifying and building. This is why we have ritual. Look at this bulletin. You notice it's the same every week. We welcome by adoring God, prayer of adoration. We repent, and then we have a gospel text. We do the exact same thing every week. This guy gets up in front of you, opens the Bible, and reads it. It might be a different portion of the Bible, but by golly, he does the same thing every week. Not always well, but he does it every single week. Repetition is a good thing because repetition drives home a point. It allows you to remember. And frankly, one of the reasons why we don't like repetition is because we repeat poor things or we repeat dumb things. It's not because we repeat the good stuff. Whenever I think of repetition, um, I think of this passage that I I read recently. Um, I had known of it before, but I read it recently from a book called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. And uh, um, it's a lengthy passage, but I'll read it in full simply because it's an excellent way of, of putting it. Chesterton writes, It might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence, of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are fierce in spirit and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. Amen. For grown-up people are not strong enough. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, "Do it again to the sun," and every evening, "Do it again to the moon." It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Repetition is not meant to be simply ritual that drags you down, but to teach 
And furthermore, repetition can help not only teach and to build up, but it provides something of the glory that you should have. If you get tired of hearing the gospel, that indicates something about your life in the gospel. No matter what text we come to, the gospel is proclaimed. The good news of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed from this pulpit, that he has come to save sinners and to save them abundantly from all of their ills. Not only to forgive them, but to remake them again. That is always good news. That is why Christ has given us things to repeat. That is why we come and we sing songs. That is why we come and we pray. That is why we come and we hear preaching. That is why we come to the Lord's table and take of it again and again and again and again because it doesn't get old. The repetition teaches and builds and it allows us to remember in times when all is dark, when times when we would forget everything else, we remember because it's been beaten into us. This is who we are. God provides repetition for his people. Third, God provides song for his people. Verse 14, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days are approaching when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land they are entering, and, I will fors- and will- they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evil come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grow fat, They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. That song is then repeated in in chapter 32. It is a song of the history of who God is, of saving them, of the blessings that he has promised to give them for obedience and curses that he promises to bring on them when they turn to go after other gods. And again, God is meeting specifically here with with Joshua and Moses alone. And God, likewise, like Moses, is not terribly optimistic that the people are going to keep their terms of the bargain, that they will not do what the law has required of them. And so he gives them a song and he says, you are to give them the song so that they will know exactly why. The song says very specifically in verse 21, will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. Songs have a way of doing that. I remember, uh, you know, I, 
grew up in Midland. I lived in this area for the first 18 years of my life in the same room, in the same house for 18 years of my life. And I left in 1998 to go up to Houghton to go to college, and then from there on in, I, I had stopped periodically, but I never really lived in this area again until I came back. So approximately, almost two decades of life, lived away from Midland and Bay City and Saginaw. And I came back here, and as we were doing home improvement stuff, I had totally forgotten about a specific store that they have around here until someone says, why don't you go to Menards to get something? And every single person in here knows the jingle that came into my head immediately when they said that. And I knew that if we went to Menards, I would save big money. <laughs> Everyone knows that song who's over a certain age because that song is so drilled into my skull because of commercials that I saw when I was a kid that music has a way of staying with you. I can guarantee you on Thursday, I can call up any one of you and tell you one of the songs that we sang today, and you will likely know the melody and most of the words. But some of you, frankly most of you, and this is not a bad thing necessarily, wouldn't be able to tell me what my sermon was about. It's not because you're not paying attention necessarily, although some of you maybe are not, probably because it's not that memorable, but also because songs have a way of doing that. That's the purpose of songs. Songs stick with you. God has made us and created our brains in such a way that songs are just eminently memorable. And the better the song is, the more memorable it is. There are songs that I haven't sung for 20 years that if they came on the radio now, I would be able to sing word for word, lyric for lyric, having never thought of those things in two decades. Some of you, a lot more decades. Thank you. So, <laughs> music has a way of staying with you, of providing you with memory. And Moses here is being told, you are going to take a song that I'm going to give you and you are going to repeat it to the people and it's going to stick with them and they will always have it before them so that they will know when the time comes, why are we being forsaken? Is it because God has just up and left and he doesn't care about us anymore? That seems to be the indication of Back in verse 17 where it says, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. Hasn't God left us? Didn't he forsake us? And he says, no, you are going to put this song on their lips so that they will know the reason why these evils have come upon you is because you've sinned against me. God provides his people with song. Listen, Christians are an incredibly singy bunch of people. We have entire radio stations dedicated to songs. Christian artists have infiltrated every type of music throughout the ages. It has been one of the most constant things in Christendom, along with reading scripture and preaching scripture, is singing scripture. It's singing songs. We are commanded to do it in scripture for very good reasons, not simply because it's good at teaching, and it is. Listen, songs are incredibly important. That's why we are so careful with the music that we put in front of our people, with the music that we sing, because we know just as much as sermons, those songs are teaching you. They are teaching you who you are. They are teaching you what Christ has done. They are teaching you how to live your life as much as what I do does that. Songs do it more memorably than I do. God provides this song so that his people will not forget. We provide songs so that we will always have Christ on our lips. That's why the type of music that you listen to, that's why especially the type of Christian music you listen to is incredibly important. 
it will stay with you. It is teaching, and it provides a way for you to remember. And lastly, God provides his word, beginning in verse 23. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous. Given the fact that he just said these people are not going to do anything that I command them, you can understand why Joshua has to be told three or four times in this passage to be strong and courageous and why it will be reaffirmed to him when they're about to take the promised land. You need to be strong and courageous. For you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Take the book of this law and put it by the side of the Ark of Covenant for the Lord, of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. If they were to obey the law, they couldn't rely on the hearts of people to simply pass it down to them. Moses knew this. Moses, who was commissioned not only to receive the word of God and pass it on verbally to the people, which he has done here, is also commanded to write it down. There's a reason why. Writing is more stable. It is not able to be corrupted as easily by the hearts of men who could have passed it down incorrectly. So we have a word that is given to us. It is incredibly important that we realize that God has given us words. He has given us words that men wrote down, that men packaged together and men sent out as an authoritative collection of God's revelation of himself so that you and I don't have to come up with it. Why do we think that the Bible is true? Because we do. Because it's proven itself to us. That means the uncomfortable parts of it are true. That means the the blessed parts of it are true. That means the difficult parts of it are true. That means it's true whether we like it to be true or not. It is true and good. Does that mean that it can't, it needs to be read appropriately? Well, certainly it means that it needs to be read appropriately. But it doesn't mean that it's any less true for all of that. We ought to be grateful that God has given us a written word that we don't have to come up with what is right or what is wrong. Because ultimately, all of that falls back on our own selves. Everyone who says, well, I don't agree with that portion of the Bible, ultimately, they simply believe in their own goodness. They ultimately believe in their own ability to determine what is right and what is wrong for themselves and for others. It is always a game of authority. So you can quote Marx all you want to, that religion is the opiate for the masses. Listen, any authority is the opiate of the masses. It just depends on who the masses are. You believe in autonomous authority. That's the opiate of every individual who's ever lived who wants to do their own thing. Why is it that you don't believe the Bible? It's because you don't believe it. You believe in something else, but it's no less based on belief. The word of God has come to us as a stable text that we can read and understand and believe is a revelation from God, that God has revealed himself to us in it so that we aren't led astray by all of the whims of broken men. 
you don't have to listen to me. I, I am only capable of giving you good things as long as I'm capable of giving you things that comport with God's word. I, I have nothing really to give you on my own. I, I, I'm not really all that much worth listening to. But the word of God is. And as far as what I tell you accords with the word of God, then you ought to treasure it, you ought to take it, you ought to seal it up, and you ought to sear it into your memory. Because these are words of life. Moses wasn't just to repeat the law to the people. He wasn't just to get up and talk to them about what the law was, but he was to write it down so that it could be reread and reread and reread and reread so that the song could be sung again and sung again and sung again. This is there for repetition. It's there for our memory and so that we can always have it before us, so that we are never without the word of God before us. God provides his word to us so that we might know what it is that is required of us. We are indeed a forgetful people. More today than ever, we have been programmed to forget to push on to that which is new and to leave the old behind. There's no reason to remember what has come. We always want what is next. The old is outdated, rusted, and slow. Christian, you ought to know better than to think like that. The old isn't outdated, rusted, and slow. It can be, but it doesn't need to be. Sometimes the old is treasured and worthy and good. And what we have in Scripture is an old, old story of a Savior who came and died for us. And we will repeat it forever as long as we live. That old, old story will never, ever actually get old to us because it is a story of that which is the best for us in the gospel. We remember what has happened in the resurrection of Christ from the grave and we have it continually placed before us because that is the only way we can be prepared for what will come in the future. Just as Joshua is able to look back and say, I was there when the Red Sea fell upon the Egyptians. That is preparing him for the conquest of the land that will come. We can look back on faithfulness that God has had in our lives and what Christ has done in being raised from the grave and we can know that for certainty, not necessarily exactly the events that will happen in the future, but that God will be faithful to us in all things. We can face the future filled with unknown joys and sorrows, death Struggle in life, both the good and the bad, for we know what God has done. We know, for God has told us in his word. Therefore, Christians, store up God's word in your heart by reading his word, singing his word, and demanding above all else that your leaders feed you the word. In doing so, let us hold fast to the gospel and keep our way pure. This is the promise of Deuteronomy. God's promises will come true. This is the promise of the gospel. God's promise is come true. In Jesus Christ, hold fast to him. As long as it is today, it is your salvation. Let us pray. Father God, 
We thank you this day for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us in so many ways. We thank you, Father, that we are equipped with memories and that you have provided for us a way to remember that which you have done, that it will never pass away from us, that it will be forever before our eyes that Jesus Christ has died and rose again, that no matter what troubles we face, no matter what uncertainty might exist in the future, one thing is certain, that because Christ has died and rose again, we need not face the judgment of God, that we will will have victory over death and over sin, that we are assured of a place before you, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us because you have not done so to your son in whom we are found. We are thankful for that, Father, and we will praise you for the good work that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.